Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 322, The Power of the Abundance Mindset at a Time of Uncertainty with architect Jeffrey Demure. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, Gusto, Easy Online Payroll, Benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. And RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more, all for free at RCAT.com. Jeffrey Demure, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, I'm so excited to be with you today. This is a really interesting time that we're going through, and I think we have a lot of great things to talk about today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Let me let people know who you are. Uh, Jeffrey Demure, AIA, aspires to live in a purpose-designed world. He loves a fine moleskin notebook, a Rotring 600 pencil, and a space created with intent. As Jeff is fond, he's showing me his pencil right now, as Jeff is fond of saying a thing of beauty is a joy forever, but ugly just hurts every day. I love that saying. While Jeff has many accomplishments, such as being a licensed architect for over 35 years with licenses held in 16 states, his passion is for building and nurturing great ELF relationships. 
you are racking your brain right now trying to figure out what ELF is. It's easy, lucrative, and fun. Some of which span for over 20 years. In 2004, Jeff founded Jeffrey Demure and Associates Architects Planners Incorporated, JD plus A, or JD and A, uh, to create an environment where accomplished is trumped by accomplishing. With a team of talented and pragmatic professionals who do life together with a unique approach to planning, architecture, and business. One of the core concepts of JDNA is the red bench, a concept Jeff created as a way to define the significance of designing and naming spaces. I want to get into that a little bit too if we have some time. Uh, Jeff is the author of Livable Design and an upcoming book, Death of the Org Chart. He's also a nationally recognized speaker and serves on numerous boards and advisory committees with the goal of influencing the vision for the future of the building industry. Jeff, there's a lot there. You and I had a little bit of a conversation before we uh, pressed record here. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. Before we jump into the the meat of it, which I think we'll probably do right from the beginning here, um, I'd love for you to share your origin story. Go back as far as you want to go back. What inspired you to become an architect, um, and and what what uh, share your journey from that moment to where you find yourself today? Yeah, thanks, Mark, and I hope you like that bio. My mom wrote it. I love it. We never get as close to perfection as our bio, do we? So, um, <laughs> my dad was was the inspiration to me, and to a certain extent, my mom, especially later on in my career. But my dad. Uh, he was a World War II veteran. He uh, was uh, he was raised by his mom and had four siblings. He went through the Depression, World War II, really, really tough life. But he always worked really hard, provided really well. Did not communicate as most people of the of the great generation didn't. But there's five things that I learned from him, and I use them all the time. And one of them was a love for architecture. The other was a love of aviation. I'm a commercial pilot. And language, that's something that he was so well-spoken and, and very well-read. We used to watch William Buckley's Firing Line, and then we used to listen to symphonies. On, and that was our, our Sunday afternoon together, um, kind of with my dad. And even though he didn't talk very much, when I heard a word from William Buckley I didn't understand, which was most of the words that William Buckley said, uh, he would encourage me to pull out the dictionary. And I, I got to be able to love language, love words, and at a very young age, appreciate the importance and the significance that, that they have to what we do and how we express ourselves. So fast forward to uh, my parents' bakery where I worked and I was 17 years old. I met an architect there. And at this was my senior year in high school in the fall, I was 17. And I started, I set myself up a work study program in at the architect's office in New Pulse, New York, uh, near Woodstock. And at the same time, I, was, I started flying and uh, working, working towards my private pilot's license. And that was in 1973. So at that time, I had the opportunity to see what the world of architecture was like and see what the world of aviation was like. I used to take trips with the commercial pilots. I'd call my mom and say, Mom, can I go to Toronto today? She'd be, oh, be, be careful, honey. I'll see you tonight. <laughs> it was, uh, it, I had, my mom is wonderful. And so she encouraged me to kind of get out there and do different things. So I had the opportunity to see what both worlds were like. So the time to pick a profession came. I had an opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy, and I had an opportunity to go to school for architecture, which I got the 
had the privilege of paying for myself, which is fine. I learned a lot, and I think that that was part of the journey. So I surmised at the ripe old age of 18 that if I became a really successful pilot, I could probably never become an architect. But if I became a really successful architect, I could probably always be a pilot. And the joy that I got from solving design problems as a, as a young aspiring architect, it was just such a thrill for me. I'd never experienced that kind of creative and intellectual uh, sort of synergy and energy that, that I got from doing that. So I went to a community college in uh, Orange County, New York, Orange County Community College. And then I transferred, uh, I moved to Arizona and I uh, established residency so that I could pay in state tuition. And I went to the uh, the University of Arizona, which is in Tucson, uh, not the junior college up the road, Arizona State University. So <laughs> University of Arizona in Tucson. I sense the, a rivalry the, there. Just a little. The professors that I had there were real world practitioners, the ones that I gravitated towards. Um, Jim Larson, Chuck Albanese, uh, the dean was Ron Gorley, and just had a wonderful experience. The people that I went to school with was a, a, a very unusual group of rapscallions that were made up of 17-year-old kids off the farm in Arizona and, you know, uh, Vietnam veterans and drug dealers and nerdy wells and this creative mashup of 205 people uh, that graduated 40. And the, the the College of Architecture, our class is so notorious that they said there's never been an, a class like it before you and there's never been a class since then. So that sort of that, that buoy base of influences um, really helped color uh, me as a, as a young architect. So that that's, that's where I started. I worked for a uh, I did not like doing residential architecture in college. I thought it was crazy, especially high density stuff. I'm like, there's no way you can do this and, and really produce good architecture at 30 units per acre. And so naturally the first firm that I went to work for specialized in residential. <laughs> and I learned to love it and I learned how to, how to do it. And I worked for a firm that was so poorly organized that if you had a willingness to do something, guess what, you got to do it. So uh, it was, uh, I found myself in front of presentations to historic boards and uh, planning commissions at a very uh, early age in, in the profession and just sort of jumped right in. And that's where it started. I, I worked, uh, started my first firm and had that for five years before I moved to Boston and went to work for a firm that I was at for 15 years, became um, a member of the board of directors for that firm and helped grow it. And then 15, 16 years ago, we started JDA. And so you moved from Boston back to California. That's where you are now? Correct. And, you, and then and when my did, wife and I met. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, when, when did you launch JDA? JDNA? Uh, 16, 16 years ago. 16 years ago. What were you going to say about your wife? Uh, well, we were, we were married and moved to Des Moines, Iowa for the firm that I was at. And I let her know the last day of uh, our honeymoon on the beach in Puerto Vallarta, we were moving to Des Moines. And she said, I guess this means the honeymoon's over, huh? <laughs> 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 so when you launched JDNA 16 years ago, did you sort of have a specific plan in mind and what you wanted that to be? Did you have a vision of what you wanted JDNA to become? Yeah, I left a firm that that did the business of architecture really well. And what uh, I wanted to do and launch as part of JDA was to bring architecture and business together in a way where we could be successful at both doing business well doing architecture really well 
Uh, we have a tremendously talented principal with our firm who's been working with me for about 25 years. And his wife is a principal with our firm as well. And I was able to identify real early on that he's a phenomenal land planner. And so this was 16 years ago when high density architecture, you know, single family residential architecture really started to come into its own. And what we were finding is there's a lot of engineers that really didn't understand what to put on these small lots. So within the first six months of launching uh, JDA, we had about 40,000 acres of land planning that we were doing in three states as a result of this hunger that was out there. So it was a real easy conversation to have. And, and so the, the nature of what we did is I just kind of followed my passion, right? The, the basic building block was, look, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do things that make the end user, right, the the owner, the resident of that home, that they're going to be delighted and they're going to be amazed. We're going to we're going to help agencies unlock the silly code requirements that they have for parking requirements and density. We're going to help them understand there's a better way to be. So we spent, I would say, the first three years of practice between, you know, Sean, Chelsea, and I. We spent, you know, hours every week with planning commissions, mayor and councils, and uh, staff planners, um, as well as producing architecture. How big is the firm now? Um, there's 30 people, but it feels a lot bigger on payday, Mark. <laughs> well, especially now. I mean, we're recording this early April 2020, you know, just to sort of uh, timestamp it. it we're, we're in the third or fourth big week of the whole COVID crisis. Um, how is your firm handling that? Are you seeing some major disruption? I'm so proud of our team. And I would say that the things that we've been able to accomplish is because of the quality of the team that we have. So the 30 people that we have on the uh, 16th of, of March, I got together with the senior team at, <clears throat> at JDA. And uh, I said, look, I think that we need to really talk about uh, having everyone uh, work at, at home. Fortunately, over the last three years, we've invested in technology that will allow us to work remotely. And it was a, it was a very easy conversation to have. And I got to tell you, I'm an old school architect in some ways when it comes to business and when it comes to being in the office, right? I mean, I came out of a, out of a studio environment in New Pulse, New York. I've always promoted that that's part of who JDA is, is the collaboration and the synergy that comes from working together and understanding what people are, are doing and producing on a daily basis is important to meeting the goals and getting the results that we need. So it was it was tough for me and I've been resistant to it. We've had, you know, people on the team that have said, I want to work from home. I'm like, that's not fair to other people. You know, or no, we can't we can't set up a, a policy where I can get I can wrap my arms around that, where I can get my my thinking around that. Well, this pandemic made it real easy to get there real quickly. First of all, uh, you, um, if, you, if you don't do business well, you will not be in business, right? And it's really important that you do business well. That's number one. If you don't take care of the business, then you don't have anything else. So it was real easy to get to the point where it's like, look, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do to keep our team safe. This is what we do for the moms and dads that have children at home. Uh, that uh, because schools are closed, that they need to be there for them. So we we had the conversation on Monday. We 
talked to the team about it, brought them all together on Monday afternoon. Tuesday, people started moving their equipment out. And if people didn't have a monitor at home, it's like, just take one. If they had a chair that was uncomfortable, just take one. This is real easy, right? We're going to make this work. We're going to do what it takes. So a lot of the little things that go on in, in a leader's mind relative to, I wonder if they're going to be sincere. I wonder if they're really going to be working. I wonder if they're going to break a chair. All that goes away at yeah. a time like this. And that's the great equalizer of, of this whole thing. Ben Bernanke said a couple of weeks ago, this is the former Fed chair. This is more like a natural disaster than it is an economic recession, right? And it's an, it's, it's a, it's a natural disaster that the world is going through. They're all experiencing it. And that has benefits to your organization if you allow it, right? Right, yeah, 100%. I, we've been moving towards this, this moment for a long time in terms of remote staffs and distributed teams, um, of having, having a new way of doing it. Many firms and many leaders have been resisting it because of, it's, you know, of the difficulty of doing it, of, the, of getting your mind wrapped around having that about the fear that's involved in taking that leap, about the trust that you must have in order for it to be accomplished. But that conversation is happening all over the world right now. Um, and they're being forced to take that leap. And like you said, there's some benefits and some opportunities that will come out of this, uh, this terrible crisis that we're going through. Because at the other end, we're going to be forced to see a new way of doing business. We're never going back to the way we were. It'll never be the way it was because now we're going to, everybody is going to have experienced a different way and, and it won't be like this forever either. It will be something new. And it can be really exciting. For me personally, it's unlocked a, a spirit of acceptance relative to how we can structure our organization. You know, Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or whether you believe you can't, you're right. And if this is something that an organization wants to do, then they'll figure out how to do it. But it's got to start with leadership. You have to believe in your people. And if you don't believe in your people, you shouldn't have them there. You've got to believe in your people. That is, that's the engine that helps to drive your organization. And part of our our goal as leaders should be to develop those skills that go out of CEUs, right? Goes beyond CEUs that we're required to do, right? So developing your capabilities as a leader of an organization, I think is tremendously important. And this gives us the opportunity to do that. I think that I'm very much of a glass half full type of person, right? And you can look at these things as being a terrible impediment and life will never be the same to which I would say, yeah, get over it, you know, accept that that's how it's going to be. So I got this model from my, uh, my trainer. I, I, I work out, I've, I've broken 17 bones in my life and I've had been banged up and, and, and bruised and battered. So I work out with this trainer who helps me not hurt myself. And this is what he taught me. And I think that's a pretty good model for how you look at, at, uh, resistance to something. He said, it's harder for you to go at 95% than it is 100%. Because when you go at 100%, when you're all in, you don't have to think about how much you're holding back. You can think about being all in. And that's what you're focused on. So when it comes to embracing a new idea, you know, dabbling with it is, is really a tough thing to do, right? You're either in or you're out. Because you what you'll do is you'll end up that that reluctance will come through in 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 what you do and not believing that it's it's ultimately what you should do. So 
I would say that this is part of a bigger conversation relative to how leaders and how we as architects and architect by definition is you are a leader. You have the responsibility to help interpret society and then bring that to the people that you design for. So social scientists are a big part of what architects do. I, when we had coffee shops that were open, I would take my moleskin and have a cup of coffee and listen to conversations uh, and, and then jot down a few things. If I heard the same thing said three times in three different ways by three different groups, then I'm spotting a trend, right? And that's something that useful that we can we can do. But it's really important that you bring your notebook and you don't just want to um, bring your phone and, and maybe record it because the difference between a researcher and a voyeur really is the notepad. <laughs> so 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 capturing <clears throat> capturing those ideas and and so what we have got to unlearn as architects to a large extent is what we learned in school. We learned that Frank Lloyd Wright and and Marcel Breuer and uh, Philip Johnson, uh, that they designed everything from doorknobs to cutlery. And that's the bar that we have to raise ourselves to. And if we don't, then we're just not enough. And that is just such an evil lie because so much of what we do has to be has to be validated in other ways other than the people that came before us. I'm not Frank Lloyd Wright. It took me 20 years in, in the profession to get over the fact that I shouldn't be doing everything in, in, my, in my practice. And when I, when I accepted that and I embraced that, it liberated me to be more of what I really want to be and what I'm happier doing, right? Because when you do what you really love, right, this is the litmus test. You know, you, you have to love it. You're passionate about it. It's three o'clock in the morning. Oh my gosh, I lost track of time. Uh, people, people value it. It's like, oh, Jeff, you should do more of this. This is wonderful. And this is the third thing. And this is what distinguishes it from a hobby. People have got to be willing to pay for it. Those are the three things that go into what drives me as passionate about my unique capabilities. Dan Sullivan has a term, he calls it unique ability. And that's the definition of unique ability. So we built an organization that's based on unique, people's unique abilities. You find out what people are really passionate about. I'll, I'll be really blunt with you. I found out in the height of another really tough time three years ago, struggling with a project, struggling with a client. And uh, I said, well, the client wants all this technical, highly detailed information. And somebody said, well, Ashley's got a couple of notebooks. And Ashley walks into the conference room and lays down these three, three inch thick binders. She goes, I have all the hardware and the doorknobs and the light fit. I said, are you kidding? I said, did somebody make you do this? And she says, no, I really love to do this. And it was like, <laughs> my head exploded. So what's my point? My point is that I can't understand why she loves doing it, but I love that she loves doing it and that she brings that to what we do. So it made the next step in that project easy because most of it was already done. So, you know, let me, let me just extrapolate out, you know, to our time now in the middle of this pandemic, you know, what, is, what does that mean to us? Well, it goes back to this notion of mindset, right? We either have a scarcity mindset where, oh no, there's gonna be less commissions now, there's gonna be less work, and there's gonna be less to go around, or you can have an abundance mindset, which is, look, I'm trained as a creative professional. I can create a new market if I want to. Here's the corollary. During one great 
downturn in the mid-1980s, New York City was DED dead, and Metropolis had just launched their magazine. Um, it's become a great publication. When I first started reading, it was a tabloid. And so here we are at, at a really tough time. That was another recession. And what were young architects doing to create business for themselves? They were designing penthouses on top of penthouses. On the top of mid-rises and high-rises in New York, they were figuring out how to build an accessory dwelling unit, if you will, or a new apartment on top of buildings. So basically, they created a market for themselves, right? And it it has just taken off from there. Are there things that we can do now that would be representative of how people want to live? And I've got certainly have thoughts about how I think that 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 will happen relative to the practices that we have. Yeah, there's well, there's definitely there's an opportunity in this whole remote working uh, world that you know, many businesses are not going back to the way it was. Many businesses will have experienced the benefits of working this this remote model and adopt it. And so now there's going to be opportunities at both end of that decision where the people who go home are going to need a real workspace because you can't work from your from your closet forever. And when a distributed team moves out to their homes, the brick and mortar office would end up having to be modified or most likely to be modified to be a more collaborative space where that team can come back to and come together and, and work in a collaborative way rather than an individual workspace. That's just one opportunity that may come from this. But the, the, the decision to have an abundance mindset, because that's really something that, that, that must happen in order for us to survive this as from a business point of view. We must intentionally decide to take an abundance mindset on this because if you don't if it's all about scarcity you will just chew up your business you will chew up your employees you will chew up your clients and we won't we won't we won't survive we will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect. And while the COVID-19 pandemic is having an unprecedented impact on the economy, companies like our platform sponsors are still building tools and providing services to help support you, to help support your business and your people through all the ups and downs of our time. Please take a few minutes to visit them each and let them know that we appreciate their support here at Entree Architect. Gusto, FreshBooks, and Arcat. Everyone loves payday, but loving a payroll provider? That's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll. With Gusto, Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, you might fall in love yourself. And let's face it, we all need a little help with our payroll process and how to handle all those taxes these days. So Gusto is making it easy. Listeners to this podcast get three months free when they run their first payroll. Just try a demo right now and test it out at entrearchitect.com slash Gusto. That's entrearchitect.com slash Gusto. Our friends at FreshBooks want you to know that you are not alone. FreshBooks has been supporting small businesses and solo entrepreneurs, and specifically, they've been supporting us here at the Entree Architect community for a very long time. They know what it's like 
how lonely it may be working from home. They know what it's like when times get tough. And they know that right now, as we all face this crisis together, as a global community, we all need to do our part. So FreshBooks is responding and offering an unprecedented offer. Now, when you join FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software, you'll receive 60% off for six months. That's right, 60% off for six months. Just visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. And don't forget, enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section so they know that we sent you. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section and get 60% off their regular price right now for six months. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. As you and your team are working from home, are the logistics of putting together a project daunting when no one else is in the same room? RCAT has a solution for you. RCAT's charrette allows you to manage projects and specification documents online with multiple team members. Discuss products, configurations, outline specs, project photos, documents, and so much more all on one page. Along with the ability to access product information, specifications, CAD, BIM, and the patented spec wizard from anywhere in the world. Charette can help your firm get more done, no matter where in the world you and the rest of your firm might be. You can even promote your firm's project when you're done. And like all of RCAT's solutions, it's completely free. Yes, free. So check it out right now at rcat.com slash projects. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com slash projects. rcat.com slash projects. Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. And so it's so what you brought up, um, Jeff, with the idea of abundance versus scarcity, it's it's an intentional decision that has to be made, right? Yeah. And there's one person that's responsible for your thoughts, and that's you. You are the thinker of your own thoughts. Nobody can force you to think about something. You choose what it is you want to think about. And from there, you choose on what it is you want to decide. And from there, you can begin to act on things. But the right putting the right things uh, into our consciousness at a yeah. time like this is so important because the way that a person thinks is the way that a person will go, right? I used to ride uh, mountain bikes. And I, I can tell you that if you when you're riding a mountain bike on a really challenging trail, if you look at right where you are, you're going to crash. In order to not crash, you have to look out ahead of you. And it doesn't make any sense. It's the same way with landing an airplane. If you look at where that airplane is going, you're going to crash. You look out on the horizon and you can tell, you can gauge what dimension you're in. And so having an awareness of what's coming next, you just did a very, very good articulate job, Mark. And I would say that your podcasts, your website is such a great benefit uh, to so many people. Your passion for your willingness to do this, you you were lit up about something several years ago and you birthed an idea and you created this niche 
that is so important to, to young practitioners, to firms that are smaller like mine and yours, where we just don't have any place to go. We don't have resources, right? And you thought of an idea and then you acted on it. And now as a result of that, there's a whole bunch of people that are benefiting from your birthing this idea, this notion of wanting to change things just a little bit. So what you touched on a moment ago relative to how people are gonna live, there's uh, about 60% of our business is residential architect architecture. We work for uh, uh, home builders that are publicly traded, large regional and small uh, home builders. And we do that on any given quarter in about six or eight uh, months. So the biggest thing that people need to do at a time like this, I'll talk more about it later, is communicate. So we've been communicating with with our clients and with our colleagues and with with our uh, trade partners. And what people are seeing is that we have some clients that are building in urban areas, and there's there's uh, a tendency now to look more favorably again on on the suburbs. And I think that people realizing that um, that getting mugged is not the only safety consideration they need to make in a city anymore. That's what this this whole pandemic has done for us. It's made us realize that uh, you know if you go back to um, a an epidemic uh, in the late 18, early 19th century uh, for tuberculosis, right? And, P, and, the, and there's a lot of parallels. People didn't understand it. People were afraid of it. Well, what did architects do? Well, they went out there and they said, look, light and air will kill this thing. And so they began to design uh, sanatoriums, right? Yeah. That were that were beautiful, that were very different than the healthcare facilities that time. So my point in saying that is just that I think that inherently that as people at, at, uh, at times where there's been something like this that we've gone through, you look to a more uh, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, kind of utopian society response. And I think that that suburbs are going to be different. And when we design them, they are. And that people are going to and, and when you overlay that with the technology, the autonomous vehicle. Yeah. Right. That if I if I do need to go into the office once a week, I can get an hour's worth of work done on the way there. Right. Yeah. Um, areas that are, are focusing again on mass transportation. I just don't think mass transportation is going to have the same appeal as we come out of this as it did when we went into it. So I wish it were different. I wish. people, But I can't. I can't wish people into living differently. People are, that's the importance of being a social scientist and not a dictator as an architect, right? And we all know those architects that, well, this is how people should live, right? And, and, and it's terrible, right? And people don't want to live that way. And so being aware of how people want to live and then having a solution for it, I think is, is going to be uh, an opportunity for practice within our profession. Yeah. And, and I, and I believe it's going to happen both in the cities and the suburbs. And this the way we are currently living today with this forced stay at home, work from home, um, it's, it's going to change not only the way we live within our homes and the way we work in our businesses, it will, it will change the way neighborhoods are designed and the way cities are designed and the way the cities are being used. Yeah, because the city was a very, was a dense place. There was a, everybody was, there was, there was this movement toward Let's get denser. Let's get because it's more economically uh, friendly. It's more environmentally friendly. But then you also see the cities are the ones that are most affected by this pandemic because of that density. And so there's going to be a reaction to that as well. All of these things will become opportunities for the problem solvers. And who are the problem solvers? The architects are the problem solvers. And so all of these, these situations that are happening 
are are going to be opportunities as we come out of this, but that we can't wait for those those changes to become apparent. You need to think about them now and position yourself as the experts, as the business leaders who are who are going to solve those problems when those problems come to light, when the dust settles and we all sort of look around and say, wow, that was crazy. Here we go. We, we need to get back to work. And then people start looking for solutions. You can't start building the solution when people start looking for it. You have had to have already built it. And so that abundance mindset and that that scarcity mindset will allow you, will free you to make those decisions. And the other thing, Jeffrey, that you talked about was being intentional about what you put in your mind. And just as important, keep out the things that are not, that should not be there, which is probably even more important to, to be very intentional about what you allow in your head, because that's what's going to allow you to, the freedom to, to look at those opportunities and to have that abundance mindset. Yeah, and, and that's what will, I believe, keep our creativity clear to the point where we have confidence in focusing on what's next as opposed to just looking at where we are right now. Things aren't going to be like this forever. As you said so well earlier in the conversation, there's going to be changes. There's going to be evolutions of how we work and how we play, how we congregate, and the the values, the thing that I'm seeing now is that life has gotten simpler for a lot of people, right? I mean, there's seven people in our family right now and everybody's home. And we've had more meals together in the last three weeks than we have probably have in the last three years. And so we've played board games together um, as a family. And my wife, who has her own business, she's a very entrepreneurial um, uh, and, and I'm very proud of her for the way that she runs her business and the way that she runs her life. And her love, uh, she has a volleyball club and she has anywhere from 160 to 220 kids between the ages of eight and 18. And she puts together, you know, 15 or 18 teams every year. She works out of the house with her assistant and she's very defined by the work she does in addition to uh, the family and us running that together. But I have seen her happier in the last three weeks with all the, the children home and with all the prepping and the stress cleaning that she's doing. She's happier than I've seen her in, in many years. You know, so what does this mean to all of us? What it means is the things that be, that were really important to us and the places that we gathered and the people with whom we chose to gather with, I think it's going to take on a, a different significance in terms of our values as we move ahead as a society. And so I think that there will be a lot of businesses that will be negatively impacted. But one of the great things about this country is that we always figure it out, right? Once we accept what's going on, we work together to, to figure it out, uh, right? Restaurants are going to be different. Um, I think convention centers are going to be very different. So all those things are opportunities for us to consider as we come out of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look back at the last recession or even further look back to 9-11 and put ourselves in that moment, some of us are old enough to remember that moment at 9-11 and the, the experience and the feelings and the, and the, and the, the feeling of, of it will never be the same, you know, sort of that, that fear that it will never be the same and how are we ever going to pull out of this? I think a lot of people right now have that sort that same feeling where 
I just don't know how we're possibly going to recover from this. We will recover from this. We will 100% recover from this, and we will be bigger and better and greater than we've ever been uh, because of what we've been through. As a, as a world, just imagine, because the entire world is, is experiencing this. It's not just the United States. It's not just one or, or a few cities. The entire world is now experiencing this. It is historic. It's never happened in the history of the world. What's going to happen at the other side of this, both there's, there's negative sides, but there's also a tremendous uh, positive side to what will happen. And we can't even imagine some of it. Some of it is, is yeah. to look back and say, oh my God, I don't know how we got here. And it's in such a good way uh, because of what right. we're going through now. Well, this is really the great equalizer, isn't it? This pandemic that we're going through. The entire world, as you said, Mark, is is going through it. And there's a, an acronym that I use for the word fear, and it's false evidence appearing real, right? Yeah. And you know what we what we are what we are gifted with as architects is we're gifted with a creative mind. So the choice that I talked about before is we can use our creativity to imagine good things, better things, or we can use our imagination to choose negative things, uh, destructive things, bad things. That's our choice, right? Because right. the future hasn't happened yet. And what we do as professionals is we help create that future. So I, I very much agree with you that that embracing the new opportunities that will come, but these transitions are difficult. And that community like this is so important. We're all isolated, we're working remotely, we're not seeing the people that we used to see anymore on a regular basis. And so that sense of connection has to be redefined to a certain extent. And I think that you've got a huge leg up because you started this a long time ago and there's a lot of people that are benefiting from it, you know, like me today. I get excited about talking to, about these kinds of things. If you didn't have this platform to be able to bring it, you know, to uh, to your listeners, then it would it would be more difficult now. So you think about that and what we can do as we move ahead because I think there's going to be a lot more desire for knowledge products in a slightly different way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think... I, you know, just, and this is, this may sound selfish, but I really feel that Entree Architect is, ha, has been being built for this moment, that the, that the resources and the knowledge that Entree Architect have inside the membership and outside the membership, it doesn't matter where you get them, um, and, and not only the resources and the support, but the community, that is so important right now, that we're all spread out and we're all afraid and we're all sort of uncertain. The only way that we, we fight that is to come together. And to, and to be together and to share our knowledge and to be with one another. And so to have a place like Entree Architect, Entree Architect, I just sort of guided it. People, people asked for it and I created it. And so I don't look at it in terms of Entree Architect as Mark LePage's. I think of Entree Architect as the professions. I just, I just am the one that started it. Um, and I believe it was started not necessarily for this moment. I think that's a little grand, but we, we needed this. And it's here, it's here now. And so um, I hope that people recognize that and they can see that both in the Facebook group and some of the other places that we have on the outside of membership and absolutely inside the membership, it is, it is a safe, secure place where people are finding the solace that they really need to find. Um, and so I, I thank you for the kind words about uh, Entree Architect and, and how it's helping to support architects through this crisis. That's a big deal. Yeah, big deal, yep. 
I want to ask you one other question before we wrap up, Jeffrey. You are a very optimistic person. Um, you are a very positive person. Do you know why you're so optimistic and so and so <laughs> positive? I know that's a very deep question, but but have you ever identified the source of that optimism? Yeah. Uh, my mom uh, was afraid of a lot of things in life. She almost drowned at a young age, but she insisted that we learn how to swim at a young age. She was afraid of a lot of things in life, and she never let that fear hold her back from being a great mom. And despite the things that she went through, the depression, World War II, um, the loss uh, of of, uh, uh, of a child at a, and and the things that she went through, she worked so hard at at abating that fear and and not making it part of who I was as her son, and so she didn't necessarily relate. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. I'm the first one in my family to graduate from college. And the fact that I was able to not allow myself to be limited and and to get enough pearls from my mom to sustain me to go to another level, even though she had no idea what that level was. My mom's 94 years old uh, this month, and um, she kind of chuckles at what I when I tell her what I'm up against, and, and um, it's a great source of pride for a grown man <laughs> to to be able to say, you know, mom, you're you're a big part of of why I'm here. And so I'm gonna you asked me a specific question, and, and I'm gonna answer it specifically. And this isn't for everybody, but it sure worked for me. Uh, my mom used to tell me uh, that, you know, that um, she was praying for me and that she'd light a candle for me, right? And um, that didn't become um, so important until a really critical time in my life. So my faith has a lot to do with why I believe what I believe. And, you know, you got to believe in something. We all have to believe in something. If we don't, it's really difficult to sort of not rely on anything outside ourselves, especially at a time like this. And so having a, a faith-based um, foundation at a time like this is really important to me. And when I got in touch with that, it really began to create a level of success that was way outside me. Because as I said early on, I'm not that smart and I'm kind of lazy. And so uh, having had the need to overcome those things and not just be a victim to that, I've always had to work harder. You know, it took me six tries to pass the architectural licensing exam the first time. I passed all nine parts except structural general. And so I had to take that six times, but I kept on taking it because I wanted to be a licensed architect, you know? And I studied and I studied and I studied. And I think that if I hadn't passed it the last time, I was gonna have to start over. And I think the Arizona State Board just felt sorry for me because my <laughs> score was a 75, which is a minimum passing grade. But what's my point? My point is it's something that I wanted. So I, I kept at it. And 
you know, you, you have to want something and you have to believe in something. And those somethings that, that I believe in, you know, have helped define me and my family and my organization and the people that I'm around. And that's what's really important to me. So thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, thank you for being so transparent and honest about that. Um, I have very, very, very similar feelings and beliefs. And uh, I call it living with certainty that, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening that are within my control. And I focus on those things that I can control. And the things I can't control, which is most of the world and most of my life, I just let God take care of that part. And, I, and that allows me, much like what you just said, it allows me the freedom to focus on the things I can control and build things like Entree Architect and other things that I've done because I'm not burdened by the rest of it, the things that I can't control, yeah. the things I, I have no, no, uh, no control over. Um, it really it allows you to, not only time-wise, but it, mentally it allows you to focus on the things that are really most important in our lives. So thank you. Thank you for well, it really that. It simplifies things a lot. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Thank you for that, Jeff. Um, I want to ask you the one question that I ask everybody here. We can wrap up with this. What is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Yeah. I would say, first of all, from a practical, immediate standpoint is to communicate, right? Um, talk to your team, you know, uh, regularly. Uh, talk to your clients. Call them up. Ask them how they're doing. I learned to ask this question as part of an entrepreneurial training program that I've been in for 13 out of the last 21 years. It's called Strategic Coach. It was started by Dan and Babs uh, Sullivan about 35 years ago. And so I go every quarter to this and a lot of the things that I talk about, I've, I've learned from, from that. You can go, a great resource for everybody would be 10X Talks. You can go to um, iTunes and download it. It's a, it's a free podcast. They do, uh, it's Joe Polish. And and Dan Sullivan and Joe Polish is who I got the easy, lucrative and fun acronym uh, ELF from. And the the other side of that is uh, relationships that are half relationships, which is an acronym for hard, annoying, lame and frustrating. So that's something that people can tap into on the 10X talks. It's free. It's a great way to stay inspired and to focus on a few things. So first is communication. And then the other thing is, you know, the way that that you talk about your firm um, I've I've written a second book to help me organize uh, out of a really tough time in our practice uh, about how to organize a firm. And it's just a plus sign. And on one side of the plus are the two things that are on the front stage of every business, uh, every practice, and it's marketing and design. And then on the backstage are, are two things that are uh, part of what we do, and it's production and operations. I would say at a time like this, keep those four things in balance. The front stage is where value is created in every organization. That's where the public sees what it is we do. The backstage, which people really don't care that much about. They don't care if you are if you say, my drawings are, are done on time, they're generally on budget, and they're basically defect-free. They expect that from everybody. You right. gotta have something else that you bring as a value proposition to, uh, to your organization and to your clients. So. At a t think about what it is you bring within those four categories and think about what's important to people out of that. You know, if you say I'm a great designer, our, our, our designs are, are really wonderful. Well, everybody says that. What else do you have? Dig deep, spend some time thinking about what it is that you can unlock within you and your organization at a time like this so that you can create a unique value proposition that people will say, I got to have. His name is Jeffrey Demure. 
The firm is Jeffrey Demure Architects and Associates. Uh, you can learn more about Jeff at jdaarch.com, jdaarch.com. You should go check it out. It's a beautiful website, really well done. Um, also, two books, right? Livable Design. I'd love to, to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about Livable Design, but I'd also like to know a little bit about the second book um, and whether yeah. that's that's released yet or or is that coming soon? Right. So the first book is out, available on Amazon, and it's Livable Design going from community going from commodity to community. And it's basically taking, it was a 10 year pro bono project with a not-for-profit organization. When the young professionals of my organization came to me and said, we wanna do this this, uh, this initiative with a not-for-profit and we wanna do it pro bono, I said, there's two things I don't like about that sentence, <laughs> pro bono and not-for-profit. But it turned out to be a 10 year investment that we made and it basically takes universal design and it shows how you can design uh, with that. It's anecdotal, it's not the how-to, we have a livable design website that's the how-to, but it's the why-to, this is why you should be doing it. And so that's available now. The second book is um, Death of the Org Chart. And it's this model that I created for how to structure your business, it's called the Q Cubed Quad Mod, Q to the third, and uh, so quality people, relationships and purpose, Q cubed, uh, quad for quadrant, mod for model, the Q cubed quad mod. And uh, both books are illustrated and artwork done by Hugh McLeod of Gaping Void. Oh, if you yeah. haven't seen his work, Fantastic. check it out. It's, yep. it's a great way to stay positive. So uh, Chelsea and I established a relationship with him when he had too much sake one night. And <laughs> we've been going strong um, ever since. And, and he's just a great resource. So the second book is how you can structure your business to uh, get more, do more of what you love, to be more successful, and to have the people around you enjoy more of what they do. And that should be out in uh, the next uh, two months. So, yeah. well, we'll we will when, when it does send us a link, and we will uh, let the world know from our in our world. Um, I love Hugh Hugh McLeod. He is a fantastic artist. I've been following him a very long time. Seth Godin introduced me to him a long time ago. Um, and I've been following them ever since. And so uh, I love that. I, I'm going to go check out both books um, because I, I love what you, you're talking about here. I love the second book really interests me, obviously. You know, that's my, that's my passion. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And we'll have links to, to um, Livable Design. We'll have a link to the new book when it comes out. Um, but definitely go check out jdaarch.com and learn more about Jeff. What's the website for Livable Design? Is it livabledesign.com? I think there's a link from JDA to the Livable Design website. Okay. So I think so. What's the Livable Design website, Chels? Livabledesign.com. Okay. We'll do that. Livabledesign.com. We'll have, we'll have a link to that as well. Jeff, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think, uh, I think hopefully uh, we, we've made a new friendship here because I think that you and I are both on the same wavelength. Um, we, we're trying to do similar things for the world and we're doing it through architecture. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining me here today at Entree Architect Podcast. So great to be here, Mark. I appreciate what you do. And my last bit of advice to people is to be bold, be courageous, be fearless, be blessed. You've been listening to episode 322. The link to the show notes and the link to share with a friend is entrearchitect.com slash episode 322. entrearchitect.com slash episode 322. If you found this episode inspiring, this conversation that I had with 
with Jeff. If you found it inspiring or motivational, I encourage you to seek out one friend that you think might need to hear this message in this episode and send this link to them today. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 322. I think there's a lot of architects out there that need to hear uh, what we spoke about today. So EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 322. Please send it to a friend and focus on what you can control. Focus on your family. Focus on your friends. Focus on your business. Shut out everything else. Take Shut all that negativity away. Focus on the positivity. And remember to help you through the next few months. We've made all our programs here at Entree Architect more accessible. Um, Entree Architect membership is free for 30 days. It's still free for 30 days. Um, enrollment for the mastermind is open. Um, this is the program that if you're if you're considering and investing one thing, invest in the mastermind. Masterminds are small groups of dedicated peers working together with full support from us here at Entree Architect. And they're continuing to build their businesses. Is They're comparing notes, they're collaborating on strategies, they're sharing resources. If you want to join the Entree Architect Mastermind, uh, enroll today at entrearchitect.com slash mastermind. We will uh, find a good group for you and slide you right in to membership with a, a group of supportive architects that are, are there waiting for you to support you and, and to help you succeed through these, these coming months. EntreeArchitect.com slash mastermind. If you want to join the membership, it's EntreeArchitect.com slash join. Be well, my friend. Be healthy, be happy, be safe, secure. Thank you for listening today. If you need any assistance, please just reach out to me. We're here for you. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Woo! Woo!
ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. And so for me, the the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.